You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Kai Russell, who is using Django and Python to build a service which helps teachers assess work submitted by their students. Kai, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the site that we're going to go over today? Sure. Um, so I, as, as stated, I'm Kai Russell. I am a software developer by trade. I've got about, uh, I'm fairly green behind the ears. I've got about five years uh, ex- professional experience, mostly dealing with Django and Python. Um, and I am the lead developer of a team of one uh, at Pairwise, um, and we are an ed tech company in Australia. Um, the tool we develop is called BrightPath, and it is a it is a K to twelve, but uh, focusing on kind of primary or elementary uh, levels of education formative assessment tool, which means that it's uh, used by teachers to kind of get a get a view of where their students are at uh, midway through the year to inform how they teach later in the year. Okay. So when you say like assessment, is this something, because I did take a quick look at the video on your site before this call, and it looked like you would have like one student's paper on the right, and then you can kind of filter through a whole bunch of other student stuff on the left, or maybe some other like material to reference that from, and then you can kind of judge kind of how well they're doing on the right and to give them a better grade. Is that how that works or is that a little bit different? Sure. So this is uh, this is the, the secret source of the application and um so the Bright Path is based on uh, over a decade of research done at the University of Western Australia. Essentially, how it, uh, how it works is we use we, we undergo a lot of research to create uh, scales, um, and along the scale, say from uh, think of it as a ruler from say one hundred to five hundred uh, students at five hundred would uh, if you put a student at five hundred, their work would be of a higher quality than a student at one hundred. So on its surface, that sounds quite simple, but the 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 magic behind it is uh, we uh, select uh, what we call calibrated exemplars, which sit at uh, various points along the scale, and the teachers use these exemplars to anchor where a student would uh, sit, a, a given student would sit along a scale. So, say there was a uh, exemplar at four hundred on the scale, and an exemplar at five hundred on the scale. You might say my child's work sits between these two points, so I'm going to place them at say 450 along the scale. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of uh, research I don't quite understand. <laughs> I'll to be frank, that goes into calibrating those scales. Uh, but what it essentially means is that there, there is a slightly more objective measure that teachers can. Uh, you say you could go have a look at uh, a student's bright path scores for their entire schooling life. Uh, if they're all marked along the same scale, it is a f- um, fairly objective measure of their progress without the need for wide-scale standardized testing. It relies uh, solely on the teacher's judgments. Ah, very cool. So a minute ago, you mentioned that you were the sole developer, at least for the company that you're working for. Does that mean that this is a solo project for you? Um, I'm the only uh, developer. The The company uh, it is a very small uh what to find they're sending bootstrapped startup so there's two company directors are both um i guess academics researchers um with a lot of um experience in assessment and measurement 
so this application, the, the current iteration of it, um, was actually built in an agency setting and I worked at the agency that built it. And then they, uh, after some time took me on directly full time, um, as a team of one. So I'm the only, I guess, person with the, in the computing landscape, uh, technical background. Um, and, uh, and that includes things like sysadmin or DevOps and everything. I, I do that all myself. Um, we, I do, I guess, contract out to freelancers, uh, for very discreet pieces of work when it makes sense, but the, the bulk of the development work is done by myself. Okay. So it sounds like you're a man of many hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this app though, how long do you think it took you to get the first iteration out? Like the MVP of this app? When I was working at this agency, we were contacted by, uh, the people who are now my, my bosses. Um, with a uh, with a developed code base already, uh, so um, it was already being used by schools, um, so production ready, um, and we took over development of that application. Uh, the decision was the decision was made to uh, rewrite it, which is a bit of a anti pattern, but we you know weighed up the pros and cons, decided there are assumptions made that no longer held true, um, to the point where it was worth the rewrite. Um, so that happened about in 2016, 2017. And I, I would say there was, uh, and it wasn't just by myself then I, you know, I had, we had a team, um, and it was probably at least six months of, uh, plus of, uh, full-time work. Okay. So this has been up and running then for roughly three years then in production? Uh, yes, it has. Okay. Now you mentioned, uh, schools there. Do you know roughly, or are you allowed to say like how many schools are using this product? Like what type of traffic or, you know, what important metrics do you have? So we just can get some insight in like, you know, what type of traffic is flowing through it? So we, uh, we, we, we target a, a wide range of schools. Um, so we have contracts with state um, education uh, authorities. Um, we also target individual schools who, whose state is not signed on. The schools themselves can sign on. Um, so we have an interesting, interesting, we kind of run the gamut as far as our customers. We have about 600 schools in Western Australia, uh, about 150-ish in South Australia, about 20 in the Northern Territory. Um, and then there's a, a kind of a mixed bag of schools from elsewhere in Australia that we sign on directly. And I, I don't think there could be any more than 50 of those. The schools that we have, it's interesting, they, they range from schools, like small government uh, or state-run schools in East Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, so basically in the middle of nowhere, um, to higher fee-paying private schools in Sydney. So we have the, the tool has to be accessible um, and worthwhile to be used from kind of both ends of that gamut. Okay. Now earlier you mentioned that you know you kind of rewrote this app from scratch after doing like a pros and cons list. What motivated you to use Django in the end for the grand rewrite? Uh, well, frankly, uh, we were an agency that primarily dealt in uh, Python and Django. So it's a bit of uh, ev every problem looks like a nail and you've got a hammer. Um, but I, I do think it was still you know, the best decision um, as Python is a, a very, very popular these days, general purpose programming language, especially um, in the realm of scientific, scientific computing and mathematics. Uh, and we make use of libraries like pandas and numpy to do some of our uh, calculations for our reporting for schools. And if you're going to use Python, I think uh, if you were to pick between 
the, the mainstream frameworks is really Django and Flask are the two, the two big ones. The main difference really is Django has more batteries included and we wanted those batteries like uh, session management or authorization authentication. So it didn't make sense to reinvent the real reinvent the wheel, sorry, with Flask and we instead use Django. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So of those Django batteries that are included, besides maybe the authentication uh, module that comes with it, are there any other aspects of Django that you're using in this in this app, like the admin or channels or anything interesting? It, it'd really be a case more of saying what we aren't using. Um, I, you know, it, especially with a team of th this size, even before I was taken on uh, by myself, it really doesn't make sense to reinvent something that you don't have to. So we use things like yes, a Django admin. Um, Django ORM is uh, really, in my opinion, for an active record, ORM is unrivaled, it, um, especially with the sorts of reports we do. It's amazing that we don't have to drop down to raw SQL as much as we do, which I think is right now none. Um, yeah, things like our model forms, um, we actually built a custom admin interface on top of the Django admin, which uh, they tell you not to do, but we did. Um, yeah, it, it, we, we really try and use as much Django uh, as as possible, much of, much of the API and the batteries. Okay, so as for that custom admin then, is that what you expose to your end customers? Then I, I would imagine teachers, I guess? No, what the none of the, uh, I guess, the none of our customers see any of that. That's just uh, for the staff at our company to in do some backend administration tasks. So it is not uh, polished to the level that I would want to give a customer, but it is, I'd uh, say, more polished than the Django admin. Yeah, that seems to be like a common theme now. I've talked to a bunch of folks using Django, and a lot of them really, really, really like to use the admin for themselves. Like, it's such a time saver to not have to roll your own uh, admin yourself, right? It's like, that's going to compete with time like used to create features on the application. So yeah, that's awesome to hear that you're using that as well. Yeah, uh, I, there is some very specific wording that I won't try and paraphrase in the Django documentation about when they say it is uh, okay to use the admin. Um, and I think I'm kind of skirting around the, the end of uh, what, what I guess the Django uh, team blesses. Um, but it's the time savings can't be ignored. Um, there are certainly some things that I'm using it for and the interface that it provides is less than ideal. And I'm, it's on the list to kind of break those out into uh, custom ad admin interfaces. But for the vast majority uh, it, of the backend tasks, it just makes so much sense, so much of a time saving. Yeah, for sure. Now for this application itself, do you have it broken up into a bunch of different Django apps or is it maybe even uh, you know some type of microservices architecture or something else? Uh, it is broken up into apps. I'd say uh, off the top of my head, I'd say there's about 10 to 15 Django apps. Some of them range from a simple uh, one or two model definitions that I couldn't find a place for elsewhere in the application to, uh, I guess, the, there are some large applications where it's, I'd say about a third of the code base would sit, um, which I guess is a bit unbalanced and might justify being broken out a bit more. But I definitely do make heavy use of Django applications. Um, it is a monolithic application. There is no microservices architecture. Uh, I just have not seen the need. Right. Yeah, especially as a, a one-man team, right? It's like, well, 
it doesn't really make sense in my mind to, to break out things into many services if you're just the only person working on it. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, and it, it actually can, not to get on my uh, soapbox, but it does concern me. I, I, see, I do see sing, sing developer teams or very small teams jump on microservices architectures. And I, I, I have to constantly question if I'm kind of missing something or if, um, it's just a, a case of copying big tech with no real reason. Uh, but certainly for my use case, I can't see really any benefit except for, say, things, uh, components I wish to scale independently of the rest of the application, of which I can think of one, which is image thumbnailing, which I think is the one, the, the classic example or something you'd want to break out. Uh, but apart from that, there's, I can't see any benefit whatsoever. Yeah. Now going back to these Django apps, you know, off the top of your head, do you know roughly like some of the names of these just so you can rattle off a couple? Yeah, so some of the ones I was talking about uh, that uh, really are just a, a vessel for mild definitions. Um, there is, say, one called sectors and one called jurisdictions, and uh, that, that they both hold a single model each, a model called sector in the sectors application, a model called jurisdiction in the jurisdictions application, and that makes up kind of the taxonomy of uh, schools inside of BrightPath. So a school belongs to a sector which belongs to a jurisdiction. Um, so in, th in those cases... The model, uh, the application name is just the model name. Uh, but say their applications, uh, there's an application called Projects, and that's everything to do with projects, which are assessment tasks that teachers run. That contains everything from the, the logic for, for a teacher to create the project uh, to the logic for a student to undertake the project online. Um, so it, I really basically, the uh, strategy I take for name applications is to have the application be named after the primary model inside the application. Um, usually there is a model that you kind of see as the, the top or primary model. And I just follow the pattern and it, it's worked for me for years. So I'm going to stick to that. Right. One of those things where if it's not broke, don't fix it. I think that there is a bit of an art to splitting up your Django project into apps. I, I know that when I first started with Django, it was very confusing to try and work out why and how you would split something up into different applications uh, and what the separations of concerns really were. Um, and that was a skill I certainly had to hone in. But yeah, it's, it's very hard to kind of put into words why or how you do it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, I don't think that problem is specific to Django too. Like other frameworks, even with Flask, they have this concept of blueprints and it's not quite a Django app, but it's like the same idea of like, well, you know, if you're working on like, uh, I don't know, like a SaaS app or something, you might have like a billing blueprint, which could theoretically be a Django app. And, you know, you have other things as well. Yeah. Our artistic or creative form to come up with those names is definitely a good way to describe it. Yeah, certainly. It's like you're breaking up your business domain, kind of. Yeah, that's really it. Um, that it brings into it brings into the equation a whole lot of business questions. And it, suddenly it's not a tech problem anymore. It's a business problem, which are my favorite ones. Yeah. So this app itself, you mentioned it's a monolith broken up into a number of Django apps. Do you know roughly like number of lines of code that we're dealing with here? Not that I'm a huge fan of, you know, judging code by lines of code, because for me, the best code is the code I don't have to write. But, you know, just give some context on like the size of the app. Sure. I believe that we're at roughly 50,000 lines of Python, about 10,000 uh, lines of uh, either HTML and Django templates or JavaScript templates, and about 10,000 lines of JavaScript. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about whether or not this app is like server rendered with Django templates and sprinkles of JavaScript, or, you know, do you have some API components with like a, a JavaScript for a heavy front end? Because it sounds like maybe you do have a mix of both. 
I certainly have a mix of both, uh, depending on what the requirements were. I've, uh, I have a, 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 as with a lot of the Django community, a bit of a love-hate relationship with JavaScript. And I have found that the tooling on the JavaScript end does, is not at the point where it does not significantly reduce my velocity uh, and pro productivity. Uh, so I only really bring JavaScript into the fold when I want to have to, when the requirement, uh, the requirements, uh, make it necessary. So the vast majority of the views on the, uh, on, uh, our product, uh, server side rendered, uh, you know, old school web views. There are, there are some components of the application that necessitate, uh, a JavaScript functionality, uh, and when I can, I sprinkle that in uh, to the server-side render template. However, there are some components, specifically some of our more interactive reports, where it makes sense to have a full-fledged JavaScript app kind of take over the majority of the of the web page. Okay. Now that one video that's on the homepage of uh, your application. You know, it looked like someone was filtering through that ruler right in the middle, like things were scrolling up and down and like pages were being viewed on both sides. Is that a single page app then? Like just that component part? Uh, firstly, the video on the website doesn't actually show the current iteration of the application. I can't actually recall what is on that video. Uh, if it is what I believe it to be, um, that is a, um, and you say this in 2020 and you get yelled at, it is a backbone application. Um, that we wrote in 2017. Uh, yeah, wow. so that, I haven't heard that name in a while. Yeah, um, there's a lot of I've got like a lot of uh, backbone code in, in the in the code base. Uh, I, I don't write any new backbone code, uh, but it does not make sense to change what isn't broken, really. However, if I was to split it, the vast majority is still backbone. Okay. Now, as for managing the front end of your app, are you using something like Webpack or no? I'm using Webpack uh, at the moment for um our SAS pipeline or scss pipeline uh and some of the javascripts the backbone stuff i'm not putting through webpack webpack it is using required js um and no transpilation um it's just fitting it straight to the user's browser which today when i rely on babel quite a lot is quite scary however all of the new javascript i write uh the non-backbone stuff goes through a webpack asset pipeline. Okay. Now for the front end though, uh, when it comes to styling up your SAS, are you using something like Bootstrap or a different library? No. So this is, uh, I guess one of my weak spots as a developer. I really, how do I put it? I focus more on the, the backend Python Django kind of stuff and my skills at HTML, CSS, uh, no, nowhere near as good as my Django skills. So this application was the vast majority of the front end code was written in an agency setting where we had uh, dedicated designers and front end developers on hand, um, which means that we didn't have to rely on something like Bootstrap. So it is all uh, custom, handcrafted, artisanal HTML and CSS with no frameworks really at all. Nice. Yeah, that could be both good and bad, I guess. Like good that it looks unique and it works exactly how you want. Bad in your case, where it's like, well, if you need to go in there and mess around with things, there's no like community support beyond the people who originally developed it. Certainly. Um, and that's why I continue to try and work with those people um, whenever I can, because they, they're the ones that understand um, how things are set out. 
it is definitely a goal of mine to uh, build a kind of component architecture out of the existing um, styles. I say I say that I'm not fantastic in HTML or CSS, but I know it enough to know what bad uh, CSS and bad HTML looks like, which puts me in a very bad category where I look at my own HTML and CSS and know that it's not good enough. So it's it's very very paralyzing. Um, and also, if I uh, use something like Bootstrap, where it makes heavy use of, uh, I guess, utility classes and not so semantic, necessarily so semantic uh, HTML, I, I also feel a bit paralyzed by that. So I, I do find that uh, you're trying to use a, a CSS or a front-end framework um, doesn't show with me so much. I'd like to continue to use the nice handcrafted stuff I've already got. But yeah, you're right. I, I do need to step up my game to operate at the level that uh, our dedicated front-end people used to operate at. Okay, so that covers uh, a decent amount from the front-end. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the back-end. So do you know maybe off the top of your head like what interesting Python or Django libraries you're using to make this app work? Maybe you can take a look at requirements at text file and rattle some off. Sure. There's a whole lot of requirements here. A few of the most inter more interesting ones are... There's this one I'm using and I have been using from basically the very beginning called Django Impersonate. And it is one of the most useful troubleshooting tools um, that I've ever used. And I have no idea why it isn't more popular than it is. It essentially lets you view your site as another user without having to log in as them, without knowing their password. When we provide support, it is one of the first tools that we go to. Um, as you can imagine, our application is very heavy on uh, permissions um, and our permission system is extremely complex and getting to the bottom of user issues um, related to permissions can be hard unless you just log in as them um, and you can see exactly what's going on. Django Impersonate is, yeah, it's a re really fun one and just judging by it was its downloads on, oh, I guess it's uh, activity on GitHub or Bitbucket or wherever it is, it doesn't get as much attention as it probably should. Right. Yeah. That sounds like it would be a lot more useful than you having to go into some admin backend and like, you know, sort of see what the attributes are for that user, but you can't really understand what it's like to be that user. C certainly not. No. Uh, especially when our permission system is as complex as, as ours, as ours is. Um, other. So before we jump into the other ones, uh, when it comes to that impersonate library, do you find that to be like a security concern where you as, you know, some operator of the site, if you can go in and log in as someone and go to their settings, are you able to like change their password to like deny them the ability to even get back into their app? That is possible, and that's certainly a concern. However, at the size of business that we are, it is not a concern. Uh, thankfully, one of the benefits of being a, a small uh, business is that you can really have a high trust environment. So the number of people that have access to this functionality is probably three, one of which is one of the company's directors. Um, if you're not gonna trust them, who can you trust really? <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you, you, uh, when you impersonate a user, you can do everything as them. Um, and we have an audit log of actions taken. So you could, after the fact, uh, you know, trace back if anything bad's happened, you can check out why it's happened. But uh, given the, it's, it's really, there's much more concerning things than this, I, I think. Okay. Now you were going to say before about maybe some other libraries that you use? Yeah, I'm looking through um, my requirements.txt now, and there's a lot of uh, ones that everyone knows, like REST framework, which I guess is is basically Django core uh, for all intents and purposes because it's used so much. 
Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I'm not a Django developer, but everyone who's been on the show who uses some type of API backend, it's always been Django REST framework. Like it's getting almost boring. It's like, of course, using Django REST framework. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I have my qualms with REST framework, but it is uh, so well built um, in comparison to anything else out there. It, it just it would be very hard to justify not using it. It's interesting because some of the philosophies that REST framework takes uh, do fly in the face of what Django uh, kind of preaches um, and having to learn these subtle differences with how with uh, patterns uh, that seem deceptively very similar. If you try to write your REST framework code the same as you write your uh, vanilla Django code, you can run into some very nasty, nasty bugs. Uh, and I see this all the time uh, with code I've looked at. Overall, it is uh, far and above the best uh, tool for this job. So before we move on to other stuff, do you want to rattle off maybe one or two more libraries? Yeah, this is one that I've just started using. Um, so it's a bit, a bit of a availability heuristic here. And it's very, very interesting. Uh, a, a big issue that we face in this space is permissions, because obviously you're dealing with information about uh, school-aged children and their performances. Um, and there's a lot of uh, security concerns in that area. Um, and as a result, our permission system, I had to really build from the ground up. I'm not actually using Django's inbuilt uh, permissions, uh, model-based permission system. Um, I came across a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it's a couple of months at this point, a application called BridgeKeeper, like Monty Python. And it is a... Uh, rules-based permission system for Django. So you can say for this permission, uh, for a user to have this permission on this object, you must meet the following criteria and you define that in Python. Now that in itself um, is not that noteworthy, but what the differentiator is between this and everything else I've seen is that it can operate on query sets. So you, uh, you can write one permission for uh, say, uh, can a user see a school? And it can be both used to check if a user can see an individual school and be used to filter a list of schools. And th this is uh, an issue that I see a lot uh, of people hit on Stack Overflow is that if you write your permissions code in a certain way and you try to run it on a list of objects at once, the list endpoint can be very slow because you're checking that permission on each of the objects individually instead of doing a an SQL filter select on that list. Uh, so what this allows you to do is have a single permissions system uh, that will uh, allow you to check a single object permissions and allow you to say, I want to I want to show a list of schools that this user can see. You may not appreciate <laughs> what this uh, what this might mean. But uh, it, I think it's a very common pitfall. Um, people will fall in in Django. You, I've seen a lot of Stack Overflow answers uh, to questions saying, how, how do I filter a list of models for permission? There are a lot of terrible answers that essentially uh, result in an N plus one query and probably an endpoint that takes 10 seconds to load. Um, I've got a few of those in my application and I'm trying to use this uh, library called BridgeKeeper to take all that code out and replace it with uh, performant permission checks. Right. And just to be clear about that, for the N plus one query problem, it would be like if you needed to list out 
I don't know, 40 schools or something like that. And uh, you have to check the permission on each one individually. Yeah, that's going to be one query for every school there. So 40 queries. Yeah, uh, those add up very quickly, <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, and then I guess this one, it just somehow just adds like a, a where condition to the, the SQL that gets the list and, the, the, and you're done. You don't need to check it every single uh, row. Yeah, ex exactly. And the the main takeaway is that it is a uh, single, you, you define your permission to check a single instance and then your permission to filter a list of instances or a query set. You define that in the same place. So it is a single API for your application to use no matter what, uh, what sort of permission checks you're doing. And that uh, just the mental overhead that removes in our application's case is... Um, it's 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 enough that it it really frees up a lot of my brain power to do other things, frankly. Nice. So maybe now we can move on to like the rest of your tech stack. So like, which what's your primary database? Do you use uh, Celery and Redis? Do you use Docker? Anything else? For our relational database, we use Postgres, uh, which for Django applications, um, in in this day and age, is the default choice. I think purely because the backend for Postgres for Django uh, has, I think it's the most fleshed out and there are, it, it has the best support for all of the ORM features and also some extra features that are supported just for Postgres. So I think I think that uh, I should go with, in this particular case, I should go with whatever the majority of people are using uh, because you know, we're a small team, we can't afford to do things on our own for the, for the heck of it. Um, so that's what we're using for our relational database and that we don't use any, um, apart from Redis as a cache, we aren't storing data anywhere else. Okay. What about, uh, background jobs with Celery or do you use a different library? Background jobs are using Celery and we don't have that many background jobs. I think the, the biggest background job we have is just sending email. Um, so we can palm it off to something async without, you know, keeping the request response, uh, cycle alive to send an email to a user to reset the password or whatever. So apart from that and say thumbnailing, you're going to have that many background jobs. Um, so I find that Celery might be a bit too heavyweight for us, but it is, again, what everyone uses. For a backend for Celery, we aren't using Redis, we're using Amazon SQS just because it is a managed service with zero configuration and it works well enough for our use case. Oh, nice. So you just uh, uncovered the mystery of where this thing is hosted, AWS. Got me there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but before we get into that real quick, uh, you mentioned that, you know, you don't really put too much through Celery because, you know, maybe some emails here and there. But earlier you did mention that you do generate some pretty gnarly reports or those are being generated in a different way. This is a, uh, a, a blessing and a curse on this application is that uh, part of its value proposition is that teachers can instantly get visibility into their students' progress, which means that teachers have the... Uh, I guess our users have the expectation that reports are instantly available. And some of these reports have a lot of inputs. Um, so caching them is a hard problem. Um, so at the moment, these reports are actually generated as part of the request. These reports can sometimes be as complex as comparing a teacher's class with the rest of the state. Now you can imagine the sorts of, uh, the, the volume of, of uh, information that you would have to process to get there. Some of these reports can take upwards of 10 plus seconds to load. Uh, however, caching them is definitely not a trivial problem. Um, and we do none of that in the background right now. Okay. Yeah. It almost seems like caching that would be, I don't know, like 
sort of pointless, right? It's like if, if you have, I don't know, how many states, schools do you have? Like 800 schools or something like that. It's like the data is changing so so frequently. Like invalidating that cache would be harder than figuring out how to solve it in a different way. Yeah, this is a, you're very much touching on um, one of our current uh, thorns. Um, it is some of these reports do change literally every 30 seconds. Um, now, I'm assuming that there could be some aggregations that could be cached. Um, however, it's not as simple as uh, you know, keeping a value in the cache for 24 hours and then updating it whenever it goes stale, especially when the expectation is that you see where your students are right now, usually just after you finish marking them. So um, there's been no chance for any time-based caches to kind of catch up. Right. Now, going back to your tech stack, uh, do you use Docker in development or in production or no? I use Docker in development. Um, at, at this point, even with this application not being overly complex, I don't see it as an option to not use Docker in development. Um, and I, I'm always looking for ways to slim down our tech stack in any way possible uh, without resulting in more work. However, whenever I look at not using Docker, um, it really, the value proposition of Docker is hard to ignore. Um, my development environment looks almost like my production environment with the same OS packages and real Postgres running uh, in kind of Linux. So using Docker in development, in production um, I'm not, uh, which is going to be increasingly a, uh, a decision that's not in, in the current fashion, I, I guess. The development architect uh, the production architecture was actually, it actually predates Docker, I believe. That's how early this architecture came about. Um, and if I was to do it again today, I think that I might use Docker in production. Um, whenever I've considered it in years past, um, back when there were some security concerns with Docker in production, and I'm starting to think that those that isn't the case anymore. But uh, if I was to look again today, I'd definitely very seriously consider it. Right. Yeah, I would say the atmosphere for using Docker in production, like, I don't know, six years ago, Definitely is a little bit different than today, for sure. Back in the day, right, there wasn't even Docker Compose. It was named Fig instead. And there were certain components of that. There's, it really wasn't production ready. But now I would say for sure it is. Uh, at least, you know, running that on one server with Compose. But there's also many other ways to do uh, multi-server deploys as well. What, I'm, what a, a technology I'm very um, wary of is Kubernetes. Uh, for an application of our size, um, I, I see... I, my understanding as someone that's never used Kubernetes in production before is that it appears to be being misused quite a lot, maybe for workloads with, with a scale that doesn't, uh, with a scale that doesn't justify its use. So I want to make sure I don't become one of those people and only um, use an orchestration tool that fits our, our scale, which is quite small. Uh, but I think using some sort of uh, Docker based orchestration tool makes sense for us. Okay, we'll get there in one sec too about your AWS setup current day. But uh, do you run something like Nginx in front of, uh, I would guess, GUnicorn or UWSGI? Like which uh, Python app do you use for App Server? So we use uh, UWSGI, and that sits behind Nginx. Um, and not to jump ahead into the production uh, environment configuration, but the Nginx then also sits behind a uh, Amazon load balancer. Okay, well, we've delayed it long enough, so <laughs> let's get there. <laughs> so using AWS, do you maybe want to go over, you know, why you chose to use AWS in the end? Did you compare it to other cloud providers? 
So as I've said, when this application was first developed, it was in an agency environment. Um, and we already used AWS and had a good relationship with um, our local, with AWS's team here in Perth. So as this was just another project for us, we went with what we already knew. Um, however, we did obviously decide to use AWS as a company um, before we took on this one project. Um, and I wasn't there for that decision, so I'm not sure how it was made. Um, but I don't think I would uh, choose any differently if I was to reevaluate that today. Uh, it ticks a lot of boxes for us, especially the, I guess the, uh, obvious one is that there is an AWS, uh, managed service for literally everything you could want to do. Um, and vendor lock-in is not much of a concern for, um, us at this stage. They have a region in Sydney, Australia, AP Southeast two, and that satisfies a lot of our requirements with, uh, our large government clients who care a lot about the sovereignty of their data, obviously. Um, and they want to make sure that the data that they're inserting into our application stays within Australia's borders. Uh, and there are only a few, there are only a few cloud providers that, uh, have a, I guess, a region within Australia and it's all the big ones. I, Azure and Google cloud, uh, do as well. Uh, but I think this actually creates both of them as well. They also meet our security requirements, ISO 27001, et cetera, um, which is a big uh, concern for us. Um, but all the big people do as well, Azure and GCP. Okay, hold on. Sorry to interrupt you there, but can you explain wh what that number actually means? Uh, not really. <laughs> um, it is like a lot of these ISO standards. Uh, they are inscrutable, um, nothing language. What it essentially it is, it is an ISO standard for, it, it, it describes how uh, information security should work in an information system. And those words all mean nothing unless you do a deep, deep dive into the spec. Uh, but it, it, is a, it is a standard that a lot of your larger corporate or government clients will definitely know about and they'll definitely want you to follow. The great thing is that uh, Amazon has a page on their site and they say, we are ISO 27001 compliant. Um, and here's a certificate. And we can give that to our clients and say, hey, look, our infrastructure is compliant. There's also the, the issue of uh, our application itself being compliant. And we have to adhere to a, a bunch of different <laughs> rules about security and uh, access controls, et cetera. Um, and a lot of them don't really apply to a business of our size because a lot of them uh, relate more to the business itself rather than the application. So do you use the regular AWS service then, or is this like now going on like AWS GovCloud? No, it's just a regular AWS service. Um, I believe that non-US governments uh, don't have GovCloud on their radar, um, I believe. But in our case, since we are just a private sector company providing a service to governments, among other people, a regular AWS seems to be enough. Okay, so going back to some of those AWS services that you use, uh, you mentioned that you know you like that they have services for all sorts of great things. Do you want to rattle off maybe some of these services that you use? Like, do you use RDS and S3 and so on? We use a lot of AWS services. Um, the obvious one would be EC2, although I guess that's not obvious these days. You might be using uh, Fargate uh, on, on Kubernetes or whatever. But since we are not Dockerized in production, um, we're on classic well, not classic, we're on modern EC2 with a elastic load balancer. We use S3 for our object storage, which is uh, 
constantly surprises me as to how inexpensive it is uh, <laughs> for the amount of data we put up that you can imagine we've got loads and loads and loads of PDFs and images and a lot of uncompressed files and the e our S3 bill is just tiny. Uh, we use CloudFront in front of S3 to uh, serve those uh, static files at, uh, with using a CDN. Uh, CloudWatch we use for logging and metrics. CloudFormation is kind of at the heart of our architecture. Uh, so our entire um, our entire production stack is defined as a CloudFormation stack, uh, which means I can spin up as many staging environments as I want to if I so chose to. So before we get into the rest of that stuff, going on to CloudFormation for a bit, do you have every single AWS service in your entire stack all set up with the, your CloudFormation template? The answer to that uh, is, uh, as with most people that say, Yes, it's usually no. Uh, I think there's a bit of drift. Uh, so I may have, um, say, on a particularly overworked week, may have added something directly to our AWS account without putting it through CloudFormation, I suspect. However, to my knowledge, everything uh, that comprises our production stack is inside the CloudFormation template. Okay, so you've gone as far as doing like roles and policies and security groups and all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, so we, it automatically would create a security group that, say, allows us access to our production servers or uh, configures the roles within the EC2 instances to be able to access the necessary AWS resources. That's all part of the CloudFormation template. Okay. Okay, so going on, you were saying uh, a couple other services as well. Yep. Uh, SES for email deliverability. Uh, SNS for, I can't actually recall, I'm sure it's some, some, uh, glue that, um, I configured three years ago and it has just, just worked. SQS. Right. Notification system, I think it is. Yeah. It's for notifications. I can't recall. I think it might just be, uh, notifying me when certain, uh, metrics are hit or something like that. Uh, using SQS for, as I said, a salary queue. So... Uh, our web servers will queue up background jobs and we have dedicated salary worker EC2 instances that will consume that queue and run those tasks. RDS Postgres, we aren't using Aurora um, yet. That's, that's uh, kind of on the cards, if I can justify it. We, obviously, given our um, a lot of some of our use cases, we use RDS heavily. Uh, we make lots of use of uh, Postgres, like very, very hairy Postgres functions. So I, th I think that um, we could maybe really benefit from the performance gains that some people see with Aurora. Okay. So how big is your database, by the way, if you're allowed to share that? I don't actually know off the top of my head. Um, I would say it's the amount of data isn't huge, but the sorts of queries we run are very hairy. Right, we're talking queries that, like, if you were to look at it and you don't really like write that much for our SQL, you look at that and you're just like, I have no idea, like hands up in the air and you walk away. Yeah, that's certainly the case where you build together what you think is a masterpiece in the ORM and then you have a look at the raw query and you have absolutely no idea what's going on, so you start from scratch. Um, I've definitely got a few of those, um, which is, I guess, the blessing and the curse of an active record ORM is that you can put together some very scary queries without really realizing it. Right. The types where you just do like an analyze of Postgres and it just returns back like a couple of question marks. Like <laughs> doesn't really know. Um, so moving on from uh, RDS, uh, 
Route 53 or Route 53 uh, for our DNS um, and domain registration. And we have a business support subscription, which I make heavy use of. Okay. So going back to those EC2 instances, uh, you said you do have them behind a load balancer. Do you have that set up with like autoscaling groups or no? Frankly, our, and this is maybe a scalability issue, our web servers aren't the first to experience scaling issues. It's usually our database, which is a lot, a, a much harder problem to solve. So I don't actually have autoscaling configured for these instances. Uh, our CloudFormation template does parameterize the number of instances, so I can turn them up and down uh, quickly if I need to. However, it has just been, however, there hasn't been very many cases where I've actually needed to add, add another instance. What we're currently at is both uh, financially viable and enough to sustain any load we usually, we usually receive. The database, on the other hand, some of our reports are very database intensive and that is where our scaling concerns are. Right. Now for that database, I don't know if you're going to know this off the top of your head because there's so many different options, but do you know like how much uh, CPU cores and memory your database server has or the, the actual instance type? I'm not sure if I can speak on that specifically, uh, but it is one of the larger ones there is. <laughs> oh, it's, it's at the bottom of the list. Okay. Bottom of the list. Yeah. That's when you start to get into the, the scary area where it's like, well, you know, 64 CPU cores, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Yeah, maybe. What about the, the EC2 setup? I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to mention the, the power of those boxes or no. Sure. I can mention that. Uh, they, they are medium. I forget what uh, what's the prefix for that, but they are a something medium. Uh, they barely get... Um, Sorry, they are mostly memory bound as, as far as where we would see constraints. And most of that is uh, <laughs> Clam AV for antivirus scanning out uploaded work samples <laughs> um, because we take in PDFs and PDFs are obviously very scary from a security perspective. That takes up, that takes up half of the RAM of our instances. <laughs> um, and we basically sit at 2-3% CPU load. Uh, so... The instance, yeah, the inst you can see why our instance size really is, we are definitely sitting where we need to be. Right. And yeah, you bring up a good point there about dealing with so many file uploads. Like I know you, that video is not really, you know, the current iteration of the tool, but you know, there is like dozens and dozens of just uploaded PDF files. That must be uh, a lot of work to scan those and make th thumbnails and all that great stuff. Certainly. It's a lot of work for teachers as well, because uh, they have to scan all the all the work samples of the, you know, of the, their class, which, you know, class size, you know, 30 students times how many uh, classes are in a school times how many schools are in a country. Uh, There's a lot of work and we uh, do encourage um, our users to upload the work to the applications so they can look back on it, um, say, years into the future when the teacher looking isn't necessarily the teacher that did the assessment in the first place and would have no idea what the work actually was. Um, and a lot of the file uploads are multi-page uh so you know an image won't do um the only, one of the only ways to get it up there as a single file is a pdf and well with pdf comes a lot of uh different uh compatibility security issues right so i don't know if you're gonna know this one but of all those pdfs that were uploaded how many viruses did that scanner catch zero <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it, it's a our, we're lucky that our users are in a trusted environment and it's a 
you can only be added to Bright Path by invitation. So you don't you aren't getting you know the average person on the street coming in and making making an account. It we haven't ever come across any malware, frankly. Um, and but we do keep it there because you have to be cautious about these things, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Now swinging back to those EC2 instances, uh, which distro of Linux did you choose? Uh, we were on Ubuntu, um, which was a decision that predates me, but I wouldn't change it. Right. Do you know, is that uh, 1804 or maybe even 1604 if it's from a couple of years ago? Uh, we were on 1604 until about a week ago. <laughs> um, I'm now writing on 2004 um, on the bleeding oh, yeah. edge. Living on the edge. Yeah. So um, uh, I upgraded to 2004 because I wanted a new version of Python. So 2004 comes with Python 3. Eight, I believe. Um, so I needed to use something that required 3.8 and I decided, okay, enough's enough. I'm sick of holding, pinning dependencies because they aren't supporting my version of Python anymore. So I've just brought the whole uh, whole OS ahead and now I'm getting to use fun things like type hinting and f-strings and all that fun new Python stuff. Oh, f-strings. That's uh, a very, very good thing to have. Uh, and I enforce uh, 79 character lines. Um I'll get angry emails about that. So being able to take the dot format off the end of a line saves me valuable real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of linting, do you use a specific tool for that? Um, I run all of my code through Black, um, and I was as vocal as someone that is not internet famous can be about not liking Black, uh, purely because I am a single quote string person. Um, I didn't like that Black used double quote strings uh and what kind of brought me over the line was that someone just someone said use single quotes uh use single quote strings because they're easier on your keyboard and just let black run over your code and convert them uh which seems really dirty but um as i've started to work more and more freelancers where um you know code standards are more of an issue i just gave up and just said okay let's just use black and honestly it's not as bad as it would be so a learning moment for me. Yeah, I've actually never used Black firsthand, but I've always used Flake 8, but both of them, like as long as you use some type of linting program, you're going to end up usually in a better spot than without one. I found with using things that weren't Black, I would fall into the uh, pit of bike shedding and, you know, how do I want the bracket to look, bracket to look at the end of a, uh, a tuple or whatever? Um, and Black is uh, great because it doesn't let you configure any of that stuff apart from how long your lines are. I think it might be the only thing you can do. So it really forced me to stop caring about something that didn't really matter that much um, at the end of the day and just get on with uh, coding. Right. So you mentioned earlier that you are using CloudFormation. Do you use any other like configuration management tools for you know configuring those EC2 instances like Ansible or something else? So I might, uh, this might be a good time to step through how the deployment process actually works um, if you want to go to that point. So what we do is we, when I want to deploy a new version of this, and this is very, um, I think you'd call it very old school now in the age of uh, CI and CD. When I want to deploy a new version of the application, we have um, handwritten uh, Python fabric tasks that uh, make use of make use of Boto uh, that essentially spins up an EC2 instance, uh, installs all the necessary OS packages, configures them, pulls down the code base, installs it, uh, and bakes an AMI image of that instance 
and that image is then used to uh, used as an input to the CloudFormation template. Um, and that image is used to spin up, you know, X number of EC2 instances, depending on what your scaling requirements are. So as far as the initial configuration of the EC2 instance, that is all written uh, by hand. Uh, it's in Python uh, using a combination of Fabric and Boto. Oh, interesting. Okay, so when you bake those AMIs and you send them in to be used by CloudFormation, how does that handle then getting updated through the load balancer then? Do you just take the old ones out one at a time with a new one until you're done? Or like, what's that look like? The short answer to that is the downtime isn't always zero. Uh, it usually is zero. Um, and this is something that is mostly handled by the load balancer and the auto scaling group um, on AWS's side. How I have it configured for our case is that it tries to maintain a constant number of instances that are in uh, that are sitting behind the auto balancer. What happens sometimes is that there are instances running two different versions of our application. This isn't usually a problem, but it is sometimes. Say if uh, as part of the deployment of the new version, a database migration runs that the old version of the application isn't uh, isn't coded to understand, and those instances uh, would error out with a 500 on certain views or on all views. And what would usually happen then is that the health checks would notice that those instances aren't performing, and would take them out of the rotation in the load balancers round robin. That sorts the problem out to the, uh, that sorts the problem out to the extent that I think is warranted in our situation. Uh, tiny periods of downtime aren't much of a concern as much as they would be for Google because we aren't Google. However, for our use case, it, it, it does work fine. It works well enough. So going back to your deploy process, I don't think we touched base on this one yet. But how do you deal with uh, secret management, like API keys and you know email credentials, things like that? Uh, is a mixture. So the I guess the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, um, are our AWS credentials and our database credentials. Uh, our database credentials are fed into our production stack or or our staging stack, which whichever uh, via CloudFormation parameters. Um, and those parameters are used to kind of see the EC2 instances when they're brought up as part of the auto-scaling configuration. So as, as, as part of an uh, instance being spun up, it will be given the current environment's uh, Postgres endpoint and username and password. That works uh, That works well enough for us. Uh, I think we aren't using like a dedicated secret management tool or anything like that. Right. Now, when it comes to you yourself, when you go to deploy a new feature, do you push this up? to GitHub or somewhere else? So we use GitHub is uh, where our repository is. Uh, however, there's no action. The deployment action is a manual action. Uh, it is not triggered by a push or anything like that. Right. Do you have any type of like CI setup so that you can just run your tests maybe in uh, a CI server, but not deploy anything, but just you know make sure the code works? Yeah, so we I have a linting and uh, test running uh, GitHub action. Uh, which which is a fantastic technology that I'm enjoying quite a lot. Uh, so on every push, I run our tests and uh, lint. Very cool. 
Yeah, I just started uh, all new open source projects for me right now. I'm beginning to use GitHub Actions instead of Travis CI. Nothing against Travis, but I have to say the GitHub Actions are quite nice. It's nice to have it inbuilt. Uh, it's fantastic, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of uh, the opposite of fantastic, do you want to get into maybe how you've dealt with uh, disaster recovery or unexpected events? Like what do you do for database backups or maybe uh, backing up those PDFs that your teachers upload? So for our database, since we're using RDS, this is uh, if you trust AWS at all, which I think we kind of have to, it is managed for us. Um, so we get regular backups and snapshots as part of our RDS configuration. As for availability, we use a multi-AZ, uh, or I should say multi-AZ configuration uh, for RDS, which costs a bucket load more money, but it means that uh, we get failover if the instance decides to go away for whatever reason, uh, which seems to happen more often than I would expect. I've, I've seen a few of them happen over over the years where the instance just decides that it's done for the day and the failover kicks in for no apparent reason. And uh, usually happens you know, when I'm asleep and I wake up and I see the RDS has switched to the failover uh, instance and uh, recovered the, the, the primary instance and switched back all, all for us. So it, it seems to work perfectly when it has to. Right. And you know why that happens, right? So that failover is totally due to Amazon being like, I have to make sure this guy continues to get this uh, multi-AZ here because things are working so well that... <laughs> you know, keeping themselves uh, in business, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jeff needs to make his money, doesn't he? Now, I guess speaking of like, you know, really trusting AWS, then do you just keep those PDFs on S3 and you just, that's it? There's no other backup or how do you do that? Uh, yeah, those PDFs are in S3 and I, I forget what uh, storage, what do you call it, uh, strategy we're using, uh, but it was one that, it was one that satisfied me in terms of the availability and, uh, I guess, ability to recover from disasters or whatever. Um, those aren't backed up outside of AWS. Right. There's like, I don't know, it's something ridiculous, right? Like 11 nines of availability. Like if you can't trust S3, then, well, what can you really trust? Exactly. <laughs> right. Now, what about things like uh, alarms and notifications? Do you have CloudWatch set up? to email you if like the CPU on the EC2 instances go up too high or something like that? Yes, so I've got a wide array of CloudWatch alarms set up um, for things like, yeah, the usual suspects like CPU or RAM usage is higher than it probably should be or it's, it's you know, hockey sticking or it's you know, going out of control or whatever. And other things that are a bit more subtle, like what is the oldest, uh, what is the age of the oldest message in the message queue? which probably means that our background workers have uh, gone away. Um, and that, that one we've hit a few times, which has been very interesting. And that's why it's there in the first place, because I learned that I should be checking sort, those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, I also have a CloudWatch dashboard set up, which has a wide variety of interesting metrics about our usage, uh, our resource usage, and uh, how scaled up or scaled down the, the environment is, et cetera. Right. Actually, going back to what you said about SQS there, do you actually have these salary workers running on the same instance as the uh, the Whiskey servers or no? Uh, no, they're, they're in their own instance. There's a, their own pool of instances. Okay. So totally separate universe. They just do their thing and uh, that's it. Yeah. So they actually, they're built from the same AMI. Uh, and then as part of our cloud formation configuration, uh, it tells 
the individual instances told you are a web server versus you are a salary worker and it configures itself uh, based on its role within the architecture. So the web the salary workers won't run Nginx or uWSGI um, and they'll just run salary instead. Right. Yeah, that's a pretty cool setup. Now, going back to maybe some other stuff that uh, you might be doing for disaster recovery, do you use any like error reporting tools like Sentry or no? Yeah, I'm using uh, Sentry and have done for as long as I can remember. Um, I Again, a decision that predates me, but I don't think I'd change based on what I've looked at. It, it seems to be the best option out there uh, by, by far. And I'm using, um, and this is a recent addition, I'm using Scout as an APM. Um, I used Upbeat back in the day, but Elastic bought Upbeat, and I think they kind of, their replacement offering was not what I wanted. Um, so I was hunting around for a performance monitoring tool for a while and landed on Scout a few weeks ago, and I'm happy with that. I'm very happy with that. Nice. Yeah, I've heard that name in my travels, but I have not used their service yet. How is it? It's uh, it's really good. It's not, um, I guess there's not as many features as, say, a new Relic or a Elastic APM, but I don't want those features anyway, and they are, are significantly more expensive. Um, it seems that... Uh, <laughs> The APM industry has really realized they can charge a lot. Um, so they're all, you know, they're all quite pricey, but they do provide a lot of value. So I guess it's justified. Right. So maybe for listeners out there who are not familiar with uh, the acronym APM, do you want to just give people TLDR? Uh, APM stands for Application Performance Management. And an APM tool monitors the performance of your application in its uh, production environment or whatever environment it's running in in the real world. So it might tell you useful things like this one view is running 20% slower after you deployed. So you probably, uh, unless you've significantly changed its functionality to justify that loss in performance, you've probably done something wrong there. It can even go as far as to say this API list endpoint is generating 500 SQL queries, which is probably too much. And you should have a look at why that's happening. Uh, so if your testing data you're using locally is not really the same shape as your production data, it can uncover some nasty performance issues that you would otherwise not know about besides, say, seeing that your average request duration is a bit higher than you want it to be. It helps you uncover a lot of uh, hairy problems that you might run into. Right, because, yeah, those things are really, really hard to narrow down without having tooling like that. I mean, I guess that's why they're so expensive, because they just know that, you know, this insight is, is pretty damn useful. Yeah, uh, I hadn't, after Elastic bought Upbeat, I hadn't used an APM for some time. And after installing Scout uh, a week or so ago, it came across some, and this is why I used the example earlier, it came across some list endpoints that had some N plus one query had some N plus one queries and were generating large amounts of queries, which were significantly impacting the performance of the endpoints and probably impacting the database leak quite a lot as well. Uncovered something I didn't know about uh, and it pinpointed what the problem was and I could fix it with just a select related on the end of a query in my get query set method on for the endpoint. So they do provide, uh, they do pay dividends as far as the value they provide. Yeah, for sure. And that sounds like a good tip. And uh, speaking of maybe some other tips, like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? So I uh, like working in small companies and small organizations because you get to, uh, 
effects change more easily and you aren't, I guess, uh, you aren't managed as much. And some of the downsides with uh, the smaller shops is that your development resources are usually very limited and you never know the next time you'll be able to touch uh, a piece of code. So I think the one takeaway I have and the uh, the mantra that I kind of uh, follow is to use boring technology that's proven whenever you possibly can. Uh, this is a part of my love-hate relationship with JavaScript is that things change so fast and people seem so dead set on rewriting things um, every every year or so. I think we've kind of set it on React and Vue right now, uh, but uh, th- there are some aspects of uh, the tech world that are very much in flux. Um, and I would suggest trying to avoid that unless your requirements justify uh, spending time in areas where things change very quickly. Because before you know it, you, you could be using technology that no one uses anymore, that's receiving no support, um, that has security issues that you don't even know about. So if you try and just use stuff like Django has been around for ages and ages and they have a, a solid... Uh, a solid workflow for reporting security issues and uh, pushing out releases. And that is part of the reason why I like it as a framework. Um, And whereas I wouldn't go and say, grab something off GitHub, which no one seems to be using without really thoroughly making sure it is, uh, it's going to withstand the test of time. Yeah. When it comes to using boring tech, totally, totally agree. Like you could really never go uh, too wrong with using boring tech. And on that note, Kai, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And uh, before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure. I have a blog which has one post on it from three years ago. Uh, it is kye.id.au, and I am Kai Russell on Twitter, K-Y-E-R-U-S-S-E-L-L. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop those into the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.